everyone, and welcome to another Crunch episode of the Mythos Manual. This is Crunch number 20, so that's really exciting. We're getting up there. We are. We really are. Uh, you've got me, your host, Leslie Wisniewski, producer of this podcast, GM, Calder David. I'm kicking it back, and I'm playing it loose. And tonight, as our guest, we have Paul Kruger joining us. Hi, Paul Kruger, bringing us boldly into a new decade. That's true. First, wait, no, second crunch of the new year. I still play Kafka. Um, he's still a bird person, even in the harsh new light of 2020. And I am, uh, and I am still the third person at this table since the last time I spoke. We are not joined by anyone else this week. It's just Paul. So maintain your excitement levels. Uh, (laughs) Great. (laughs) Uh, frequently when we, when we sit down to do crunch episodes, we kind of review the, the previous two episodes and talk about things to dig into. But so much happened in these past two episodes that it's almost like, it's like where to begin. Uh, Paul, you lived them. Uh, What really stood out for you? Well, if I had to isolate any one thing about these episodes, it would maybe be that I was right. I was right. I called them a filthy thing from the get-go. And I don't understand why my party mates didn't go with it on me on this one. And it's like, guys, Kafka is a dummy, but he's not a dummy. So besides... The nature cult, which I think we can all collectively agree Kafka was right about. Was there anything that you didn't see coming or really kind of took the wind out from under you? Oh, yeah, man. I So look, I saw the whole nature cult thing coming because, you know, same thing with like Duke Luca. Kafka can always smell a snake in the grass. What I did not smell was the leaves in the grass. Like, I, I expected one betrayal, but Cal, man... I should have thought that, of course, the iPhone she gave us would be wiretapped, but... Yeah, that's uh, basically it, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. but I did not think that. And that revelation, oh man, especially when you think back to the fact that we used it to scope out, like, the theoretical hiding place for Otlatika, meaning that we had just tipped to the hags exactly what our big play was. Oh yeah, all, yeah, they knew everything. At yeah, that point. yeah, yeah. No, they definitely did. And as with all of the bad things that happens to the party in this podcast, it was all Christie's fault, really. It's it, ah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Eulister, Dalton. This. I don't think that was Christie's. A hundred for fine. Sorry, Kata's fault. I know we have to. <laughs> I don't think that was Kata's fault either. <laughs> no, it um, wasn't. Well, but Cal, this was. You know, Cal, can you talk a little bit about um, that? particular item do you feel did you feel like it was an obvious ploy at the time no no the last leaves of the autumn dryad is the name of the item not just the spirit of the ginkgo no it's not just (laughs) or just kata's leaves they're they're an item from i think they're from ultimate equipment i can't say for sure they might be from something before that but like they're definitely in a book and i pulled them out because they were so fun and like so different i thought that they could be kind of like an interesting it's fun to give like a low level group like a really crazy magical item because mm-hmm. they'll like they'll for sure use it. Right. And like that's really fun is like to see like players have fun with like a cool item that you give them as a GM. And they won't live, look the gift leaves in the mouth. Probably not. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kata didn't. She certainly didn't. But like, you know, it happened early enough in the story. And I think at the time. The only person who thought it was a nature cult was Kafka. Yep. I think it was like something like I had written in my notes that like they have the last leaves of the autumn dryad. Right. And I think during the role play of the scene, like, Kata just said something like, oh, hey, can we, like, get, how do we get in touch with you? And then right. I, and then I kind of, like, improv I'm like, oh, this item. 
And, like, I remember being, like, because I remember giving it to her and then thinking to myself later, like, that's actually a really dumb way to communicate. They're leaves and you transform and go talk to them. Like, why would, that's a really inefficient thing <laughs> to accomplish what she asked for. But it was in my notes and I was ready to give it away. So. And it definitely came in handy. I was really impressed that Christy, as she was pulling them out to use them at the end of this final, ep- of this last episode, was like, wait a minute. That was pretty funny. Maybe I shouldn't use these leaves that hag gave me have they been using it the whole time oh no yeah that was the spirit of the ginkgo was arguably one of my favorite christy bits because i think she really loved being she really enjoyed that and i like it when christy really enjoys things because she like (laughs) she she does them a lot yeah she just takes like a real expressive interest in that thing and like will like kind of really develop around it and i like think that's really fun Mm -hmm. uh so it was fun to then really it helps me kind of draw I think Kata into the story a little yeah. bit. I think that that's been a really good opportunity to really kind of pull her in even further. And from my perspective as a GM, like I feel like Kata drives out of that action. Mm-hmm. She throws rocks at it. Exactly. But I, th- <laughs> but I feel like it's motivated and it helps yeah. to give her a little bit more motivation. Definitely. Well, we already talked a little bit about like the things that surprise slash did not surprise Paul slash Kafka. But Cal, as a GM, I feel like a lot of your machinations have come to fruition. It's always a really nice moment to see all your machinations come to life. Yeah, it was cool. Um, I, you know, this is a lot of, you know, the behind the scenes stuff where you can finally be like, here's the big evil plan and here's all the evil things. You fools! You fools! I get to be, I get to, I get to do several bad guy speeches. (laughs) So I guess my first question is, like, when you presented us with the challenge of the dragon's jungle, What you presented us with were a whole bunch of different threats. And I guess my question is, were the hags always the end game for you? Oh, no, they totally weren't. But I knew they were like a possible end game. I went in, I went into being very much like I wanted you guys to have a bunch of input and just kind of see where I felt like the story should go. And I kind of, in my head, I wanted it to be... I think at some point, like part of me was like, I want him to, I want the players to like make a choice between siding with Zorandagam or siding with the Hags. Like, I saw that maybe as like a binary choice, like a video gamey sort of thing, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. you must choose between these two factions. <laughs> make uh-huh. sure you save because this yeah. choice will drastically alter the rest <laughs> of your game. Yeah, make sure if you have any side quests to complete, complete them now. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, we definitely, we definitely chose this time. Uh, or, I mean, really, one side kind of chose us, yeah. depending on how you want to interpret that. Yeah, that's the thing is, like, it didn't, it did not end up working that way. Is like, because the story, because, like, in my head, everything feels a little bit more, it's all on paper, and it feels like I can tell the story in a very orderly, succinct, quick way. <laughs> and, <laughs> exactly. And then players get their hands on it, and it just goes in a completely other direction that you could never have anticipated you didn't anticipate christy throwing rocks at things <laughs> how long I, have you been playing with her i didn't just well i just didn't anticipate you guys making choices at certain things and you did like i think like you guys discovering little cloud and like me improvising that whole hag scene like changed everything i kind of had which seems like so small really it but like it, it it changed like i knew what the forces at the at play were but i'm really trying to like inherit a little bit of like what these characters are doing and what they want so from my perspective I'm Mathilti, right? And so I know that the group of you are in Poema, but I have a problem because I want into Poema, but this ghost is keeping me out. And I don't want to deal with this ghost. 
So I think you'll deal with the ghost for me, and then I will kind of collect. That's, yeah. Yeah, and like that's kind of Mithilti's like game, which is why Mithilti didn't have to necessarily in my head at first be a, like necessarily an end game villain, which she's very much kind of turned into. Yeah. She's definitely been a very big villain, but I kind of wanted to put her in a position where she controlled the jungle and she controlled it in an orderly way. And because the way she like does it, it, it didn't make sense in the long run because that's the, some choices we made just don't make sense. Like she's too bad at this point. Like for... At this point, for sure. Because I, I keep thinking about how if Yulis or Bar- Burnbook had survived to Poema and that had been Alan's character, if maybe things hadn't, wouldn't have gone the other way towards hating the Charo Ka because they were so directly responsible for Dalton's death. I feel like at that point, that would be the big motivator of loss. Whereas for Damius, as soon as Mathilti drops the card that like she was responsible for the massacre at Leroy, yeah. for Damius's character, like, oh, well, then we're done here. We have nothing more to talk about. I will do everything I can within my power to take you down. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas like Yulser and the rest of the characters don't not, uh, the rest of the player characters at least don't have that intimate connection to that tragedy and are more I would argue concerned with the the current it, state of mm-hmm, things yeah. the NPCs that they are with at Re- the versus history yeah. yeah yeah well we're not trying to save the jungle right like and then, like and specifically from Kafka's perspective like I know that obviously Damius has ties and I know that some of the other characters have their own curiosities because, you know, there are changelings here. And so Cheldi is interested in that, you know, Kata is the daughter of an adventurer. So she's a little more interested. Kafka doesn't care about any of that. Kafka signed on for what he thought was going to be an easy credit that would delay him having to tell his parents that he was flunking out of school. Like this is way more than he signed up for. He just wanted to like, I don't know, get with some hot jungle chicks for a semester and come back with like some cool stories and like maybe a a cursed shrunken head. And that is not what happened. No, it's super not what happened. It's kind of bullshit. In Kafka's opinion. Yeah, in in Kafka's (laughs) opinion. Yes. Uh, Well, speaking of Chaldee, I think it's so interesting because only very recently over the course of the Mythos Manual has Chaldee become sort of like your guys' del facto, we're going into the jungle, who are we bringing? They didn't, yeah, you guys didn't use her for a good a good chunk. You know, in our defense, Kafka tried very hard to form a bond <laughs> with Chaldee that one time, and she just was not having it, even though Kafka is an incredibly charming and sweet boy. Got everyone else to kind of like you. Exactly, I got everyone else to kind of like, and you know, like, Obviously, would I have liked to have been effective on that encounter? Sure. But from an organic, like, fiction standpoint, I kind of love that there's one person who just, no matter how hard Kafka tries, like, this person will just never be impressed with him. Yeah. I, I like that a lot. I like that Kafka and Sheldy are kind of sitcom arch nemeses. Yeah. Newman and Jerry. Exactly. Because Sheldy's just always like, nothing that I find important can you even comprehend. Mm-hmm. Like, almost. Mm-hmm. Which or, is a dynamic I love to play with. Whereas mm-hmm. like her relationship with Damius and uh, and Kata is a little bit more nuanced because she sees that they have like a degree of similar values in the things that she holds dear to her. Um, especially after going to find the Laughing Dog Tribe and all that stuff. It, but it feels like as you guys have gotten to know Sheldy more and more, you have rapidly approached this crossroads with um, with Sugarglade. And those two stories really dovetailed beautifully so that whenever you had that uh, encounter with Sugarglade, Cheldy was there. Uh, and Cal, did you feel like that Cheldy being there really kind of helped um, sell that, that story moment for you? 
It was nice. It's nice how some these story moments have kind of worked out. I never saw this is a good instance because I never saw us going to Sugar Glade. I thought we were going to do Oatlatika. That was like kind of how the story had been set up, how we were going into that sitting, very much thinking like, oh, we're going to go do this Oatlatika thing. Instead, we ended up at Sugar Glade, and which then has changed the story because. Yeah. In my head, it's to go back with like that improv encounter where the first hag died unexpectedly to my story. So now Mathilti doesn't like the party because they killed her sister. Right. Like she didn't really have a problem with them. Like they weren't an issue. Like she, was, I think she was going to do something, but like it was like in her time, in her spooky way. <laughs> but then, like suddenly, no. yeah that does happen suddenly like i think she looks at the situation being like oh they are actually a threat to me they've killed my like hag sister they've totally disrupted our everything we've already got going they gotta go they gotta go now Mm -hmm. and so the party just happens to walk in on them doing something pretty spooky and evil in that uh in that hut involving soul gems which are conduits of like you know humanoid souls and a very evil kind of practice, obviously. Super dark, super overtly evil. Not much room to wiggle out of that. Right. Nope. And then we get the, and now we also have like the full on information of, we can kind of put everything together, right? So it's like, okay, there's two hags now, Mithilti and the Herald of Angazan, who is actually a hag masquerading as a Charoka. The Charoka being controlled. That's, it's just like, it's my favorite little thing is like, I really like creating like a problem. And then being like, that wasn't the problem. It's a symptom of this much bigger problem. And it is a much bigger problem. For sure. Cheldy being present at that moment of confrontation. There's a moment in one of those where Cheldy is kind of facing off against all these hacks. And she says like, ugh, came all the way out into the jungle. And it's just a coven. And it's hags, and you you hear kind of that character's frustration with, like, I just, it's like I can't get far enough away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I had, a, like, a really fun time kind of imbibing that a little bit and, like, how she must feel about it. It's been fun because, like, a lot of this I didn't, I could have known how this was going to go. I couldn't have known that you guys would bring Chelly. I'm not, you know. Psychic, we're, like, yeah. yeah. and I'm not, and a lot of these, like, notes for these characters are just growing as we go because, like, they just start as, like, I don't know, I probably have a, a couple paragraphs written about each of them before the campaign started and everything else has just been kind of springboarding off of those decisions and, like, we'll see where, how the character changes as we go, like, through your interactions. Like, I could never have predicted, like, Chelly would be here and having to confront this or that, like, Shayaka and Damius would be dating. Yeah, so, like, we know, <laughs> like, for instance, we know a lot of the deviations from your original design for Shayaka. We're, we're now aware of... Like that, but is there anything about your original vision of Cheldy that just really didn't survive contact with us? Oh, I know one. What? Uh, so the you know we've talked before about like Dalton kind of always having this potential fate of of like of death, and we've talked on crunches before about how a lot of these NPCs have that potential of of uh, encountering fate in a way that that leaves them dead. And I, right, and some like planned endings for everybody along like along the way. Like everybody had a certain day where they could possibly die. That you like, had, that like, you had kind of already had in mind. Yeah, which very good horror, very good use of the horror tropes. A bunch of them end up not working. A lot of some of them stayed, some of them didn't. Like like Jack is just gone. Jack is just never happens. But like Chelsea sort of does. It almost does. It almost does because like Chelsea's thing was obviously like she 
somehow gets, you know, taken by the hag coven and like turned into one. Like that was, th- that's the obvious thing that could happen. And that golden apple moment I think was, was very that. much me being like, I know what I'm doing right now. Uh-huh. I'm killing Shelby. <laughs> She's going to be a hag and it's going to be sad. And, um, and then, and then, and then Damius, like a goddamn hero suddenly, <laughs> like the goddamn arrow. <laughs> just, you mean like, the hood? The, the hood. Like, like suddenly does like some Indiana Jones shit and saves her. It's because we've learned our lesson. Yeah. Like we have, we have lost too many people and we will not lose any more. And I, and I actually really appreciated that as like both as from like a meta standpoint that we were trying to protect these people because we'd had such bad recent losses and because mm-hmm. we were specifically trying to protect Cheldy from this insidious side of her heritage. Like uh, Cheldy arguably dying a death that is her night. That is like her worst case scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And getting to prevent that was nice, but I also appreciated it as a role-playing choice from Alan when he's got a character who at the beginning couldn't be bothered to remember anybody's names and then he is risking his semi-undead limbs to save Cheldy and yeah yeah, Cheldy was one of the NPCs he liked better than the others Mm -hmm. uh, like with the obvious exception of Shyaka and And, Ruth and Ruth and uh, Anushka like like if you have if we had Damius as MySpace top eight (laughs) like Cheldy would be on there but I don't think she'd even be on the top Four. Like, he likes Cheldy, mm-hmm. but I think it says a lot that a character who has been bent on, hell-bent on surviving this jungle, mm-hmm. no matter what, uh, risked his life to save Cheldy, kind mm-hmm. of, I think, in a way, maybe this is me projecting, but, like, having that understanding of what it would be to die to your darkest self. Yeah, I mean, I think that's... I think that's pretty fair for a guy who externalizes his dark half. Mm-hmm. And I think also it's especially notable that he decided to be, as you say, Cal, a goddamn hero yeah. when we now had a much more full understanding of the scope of the danger we faced. Like when we took down that hag, who was the one who killed that hag? Was it, it was Christy, right? Yeah. It's Christy does her big snake transformation for the first time. Yeah. Which by the way, love the dramatic irony that the one person who was the most pro Mathilti was probably the one that Mathilti hated the most uh, deep down. But no, Christy was all like, Grandmother Willow this. But (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to grind Mathilti into aspirin. But anyway, um, I thought it was kind of neat that like when we faced that first hag, like we kind of got, you know, there was no hint that there was a larger hag storyline going on. It's just like, oh, neat. This is like a hag, I guess. Jungle hag. Yeah, it's like a jungle hag. Cool, random encounter. (laughs) Exactly. But now we understand exactly how powerful these hags are, how lucky we were with that last encounter that we actually killed her. Um, And Alan, as Damius, had full knowledge of that Mm -hmm. when he made that choice anyway. And for once, it it paid off. Definitely. uh, We've had very bad luck. Like, when Kafka tried to save Dalton, it definitely did not work out that well. Mm Mm-mm. It's fun, too, because Mithilti really brings this kind of clear peek into the past that has been so obscured by people, by different characters' points of view and, and memories. And so Mithilti's saying, like, oh, I was responsible for Leroy and I killed all those people. Also, Suresh gave me the paw of Angazan. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Which is like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> Excuse me? He definitely neglected to mention that during our heist planning. When he was like, let's steal the paw. Yep. 
when he said specifically he said Kafka this belongs in a museum and my museum in my basement <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a museum it's really nice it's a very exclusive museum it's a personal museum <laughs> don't you see it's a poditorium uh, um, <laughs> Paul Space just then so upset oh yeah this is another thing I loved about the episode Christy thought I was funny for once yeah. She did. She, she really, was she... really getting a giggle out of you. Yeah. Chris was tripping balls, man. No, she wasn't. She, <laughs> she was. Start spreading those rumors. I want to talk about using content from so other source material to like help inspire your game a little bit and give you ideas. And give like flavor and stuff. This isn't set in Galarian, but I'm using a lot of uh like Paizo official like gods and things like that. Galarian being Paizo's like Paizo's the, official setting is like right. the it's inner like, sea like, lost omens, whatever. Galarian is to Pathfinder as uh, Forgotten Realms is to Fifth Edition. Exactly, like, well, right. like sort of. Like, fifth Edition actually is different because like it has a whole bunch of different settings, right. and I mean, like there's like, only like, one in Pathfinder. Right, but in terms of like that's like kind of their the home base. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we're using the we're using. A lot of the gods. I think all the gods from that I've, I've incorpor I've been just kind of freely using in my homebrew world because mm-hmm. I because I don't care. I, like I like like I don't have like a real setting for like my gods in my homebrew world. Like, I don't I don't really care. Like it's not like a concern. You don't want to build a pantheon? Uh, no. Like I, I was in, I was more into it when I was younger, but now like I look at like official material and it's written really well and it's really clever a lot of the time and like I'm just comfortable using it. Like I I don't care enough about my if I ever. I sometimes have like come up with gods when like I feel I need a god for a story beat and mm-hmm. the one doesn't already exist. Like when we did on Miyoto, I had to invent a goddess of the sea, Lo Shen, because I was really into the idea of like a female water goddess of like storms and travel. Like mm-hmm. like that was like a really kind of like a very perfect image in my head of that. And like that didn't exist already, so I had to invent her. Right. I had some like vague ideas of what I kind of wanted, which were like demons and like beasts in the jungle and like I and like this pulpy kind of horror adventure and a lot of that already existed kind of you just had to I just had to kind of think of it in my own way right essentially I just kind of read over the Angazan entry from like the book of demons and like his information and like I've just incorporated him as part of like our set or part of our setting and part of our lore. And it's fun. Cause like I was able to use some of this information. I had some like quick notes about like maybe the party like Angazan, well, not Angazan, when Zoran Nagam saves the party, I think I came up with that idea pretty soon before like we actually ran that episode. Like that was not like something I had like yeah. plotted out a long time ago. That was just something I kind of like, I couldn't really justify. I think how the pay, how this doesn't end in a TPK? Yeah, I remember. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm I am vigorously nodding because I didn't want to interrupt, but since I've been prompted, yeah, like it felt like that moment felt like the kind of thing where we had to fight. We had no choice but to fight. You're super cornered. Yes, but it also felt like. Like, it's the kind of thing where I trusted Cal wasn't going to lead us into a TPK. In all the years that I have played with Cal, only one TPK has happened, and he wasn't happy about it happening either. And it wasn't in a homebrew. It was in a... Uh, it was in a module. In, in a yeah. module. Yeah, and, like, never mind. A homebrew. A homebrew that's being recorded for, like, <laughs> home consumption, for personal use. Uh, so, I, I knew that surely Cal had to have something planned, but, like... He let it go as long as possible before he bailed us out, which was good storytelling, nerve-wracking playing experience. Oh, my God. 
because the story had just been set up to the point I wanted to, I was trying to keep everything really organic and like the story is moving us in this direction where Mathilde knew you were coming mm-hmm. you had the leave so she knows she's she knows you're on your way there like they have a lot of stuff like a lot of natural defenses that they have lowered because they want to look peaceful and they want to like be perceived a certain way so the precise you, moment mm-hmm. they're able to raise their defenses trap you guys in sugar glade and you know threaten to corner and i had to kind of like i felt like i really wanted to like play it to the close to the brink and i think like right before the session i came up with the idea of like okay well yeah i i remember uh b- between sessions uh cal and i kind of talking about like well Coming to my parlor, says the spider to the fly. The party is trapped in Sugar Glade. They are completely outnumbered. They are injured. And there's very few ways out of this. So how can I... I remember like talking about like create an organic opportunity for them and also kind of um, guide the story forward. Yeah, I think... Because I didn't feel it was fair. Like I think sometimes the TPK maybe could be fair. Maybe Maybe that could be how the story goes. And like... Who knows? Another set of explorers pick up the reins and like, but that just isn't the story. Like that isn't, like, I could be down for that game. That game exists and I could be down for it, but that's not what we're doing. Also, it wouldn't be fair because I feel like TPKs can happen out of like, I guess they can happen out of like sheer bad luck and that, that could just be part of it. They can also happen out of like catastrophic like bad decision making, which I don't think happened. You guys just kind of fell for the bad guy's ruse, kind of like I wanted you to. Like I like <laughs> like this fucking story. I felt like, but because of that, it puts you in a really bad situation, which like narratively is interesting, but like mechanically is deadly. There's this really kind of wonderful moment that uh, that Damius slash Alan has, where you guys are like, I guess we're doing this fight, and Alan's like, Well, if this podcast ends tonight. Then, like, we're going out fighting, and we're going to just kind of hit it head on. Which is good energy. Definitely. It was, right. You were all very much, like, I, I think maybe two rounds had passed before um, that door opened. It was a single round. Oh, it felt like two. It was two. a single round. It felt like two. It sucked the whole time it was happening. And I love how you were like, yep, I'm going to jump in this hole now. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and away we go. You know, well, just sometimes you have to stop for a moment and think, well, what would my character do? I know what Paul wants to do, but what would Kafka want to do? And then there are times when you and your character are very in sync. <laughs> and Kafka's grabbing him like, jump in the hole! Mm-hmm. 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 So I just come up with that idea, and I and I was kind of searching, just because like, I had read so much about like Angazan, and like, this was a really fun ex- exercise, because like, I read the whole thing about Angazan, and like, his abyssal realm of Avathkor, the nightmare jungle of the abyss, like where his black ziggurat dwells. And it's the sort of thing that's really fun, but, like, we would never need to use. Like, that'll never come up in this campaign. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly, like, you guys go through this portal. I'm like, I want to make this kind of fun and jazzy. And so I'm like, oh, they, like, fall through Avath Core for a while. And then before ending up back at Trader's Tree, that's really flavorful. And, like, and I I feel like it kind of, like, helped this kind of, like, it just create this kind of menacing because i didn't want it to feel like oh we were just rescued everything's cool like it it should be like this is still bad this Mm -hmm. is still like this is still not cool like this is still a a situation where who knows where we're at and what's happening around us we're in a very more dangerous place possibly we are yeah we are taking our chances with the fire because we are over the frying pan definitely because i feel like there were several moments throughout the campaign already where Zoramnagam's like, come to come to my tree and and free me. And everyone's like, well, we're just never going back to that. Yeah. We're just going to ignore that. We are not going to deal with it. We're just going to let that demon be in that tree, okay? Uh, but then it was like, well, 
uh, one of the giant powers in the jungle is mad at me, so I'm going to go hide with the other one. I mean, yeah, he was the only thing left in the jungle that could convincingly save us, because yeah. he did. And, I mean, honestly, I love any excuse to make Cal do that voice that I know is hell on his throat. It's, it hurts sometimes. I, I I think I just got, I'm, I've just recently gotten over being sick, and I don't think I can do it right now. To your credit, it was a very scary, menacing voice. But then the <laughs> priest died, and you just had to be the demon in the tree. Until, yeah. until, <laughs> until you came up with a different voice. The son was born. Obviously, Umbach shows up. He's come to, it's kind of like this, right? Or something. It's a little more raspy. It's 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 like it's like off-brand Aldi Trump. Like it, it just they really creep under your skin. You're like, I don't like this guy, but he's an ally, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely sort of this. I I would like to think that if the story had gone the other way and the players had ended up al- aligning with Mathilti, that would be just as uneasy of an alliance. Yeah, in the version of that game that never happened. Yes, I feel like that would be the right vibe. It's exciting to to see the the eye of Sauron of this story kind of refocusing on Suresh, the person who hired you for this expedition, the person whose wife has a tragic connection to this jungle and whose daughter is having horrific nightmares and who is cursed and I think becoming a demon and who gave the yeah. paw of Angazan to Mithilti and Kafka has been kind of like keeping an eye on him this whole time. Yeah, again, like... Smash loves Kafka. Yeah. Kafka, my boy. I mean, again, everybody should love Kafka. He's great. He did nothing wrong. And (laughs) And never has and you can't prove anything. And every time there's some kind of insidious threat to the party, Kafka is always the first one to sniff it out. Every single time. You just know the tropes I like. Well, I mean, yes, I know the tropes you like. But, like, I mean, I think it's worth talking about a little bit. Like, we've mentioned it a little bit on the show. Kafka, I wanted to play him as a dummy. I, I like the idea of playing like kind of a burnout uh, and kind of a scumbag. Um, and like Jason Mendoza from The Good Place was a really major point of influence. We had two shows on that I loved, The Good Place and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And both of them have front and center a, a beautiful Filipino himbo. And I thought, yes. Yes, I want to emulate this. It me. Yeah. <laughs> I am the himbo. Repre- representation matters. <laughs> but I also knew I, I needed a mental stat. And so I went with like this wisdom-heavy archetype of fighter because I like the idea of a person with absolutely no magical aptitude trying to go to pre-magic undergrad school and having to drop out. Um, but then I was faced with the question of, okay, if I'm going to have a dummy then how do I play this wisdom? And I decided that the idea with Kafka is just that Kafka is too dumb to fool. Mm-hmm. Like people are doing all these elaborate things that will fool clever people because clever people are always looking for the shiny things. Kafka is just too bogged down in the very basics of a thing. And so you can't lure him or dazzle him past a certain point right. because he just isn't on that level. And that's how I tried to play it because I didn't want it to just be, oh, Paul knows the tropes that Cal likes Mm. and Paul's metagaming. Like, I really tried to make it a character choice. And I think, like, you've definitely stuck to it in a way that has ended up working out really well, if only because so often you hear, like, the the correct answer is often the most simple, Mm. right? Mm. Yeah, and that was kind of what I was trying to go for there. Like, Kafka is a character who, when he sees that he is standing on a problem and he sees a solution, his solution, uh, his plan, his path will always be, 
the most direct and straight. He doesn't want to take any turns, doesn't want to do anything fancy. He will just go straight at it and he'll, if it doesn't work, he'll just kind of go straight at it again. Eventually, he's going to get there. <laughs> It'll eventually work. Well, yeah. What would you think Kafka's thoughts are about Suresh? Like, he's been hyper-interested in him, and I don't know if it's because he thinks that he is nefarious or he really likes Suresh for some reason and cares about him. Like, what's really guiding those choices? I can tell you exactly why that is. Fantastic. And I think I touch on it a little bit in play, but I'll be more explicit here. Kafka's parents were... Loving, but also distant because they were working all the time. And they were working all the time because they were trying to build a better life for their son in this new place that they've emigrated to. And that, like, that's part of why Kafka is so afraid to tell his parents the truth. Like, yeah, he doesn't really care about school, but he does care about disappointing his parents. Um, and so he is frustrated with Suresh because he sees a daughter who clearly needs a parent that cares about her the way that Kafka knows his parents cared about him in like in the way that they knew how to care about him. I definitely think that Kafka probably would have turned out better if they'd been a little more emotionally present, but I think Kafka like this is again his wisdom. Kafka kind of understands like Kafka understands the ground level struggle of being a parent. There is this thing you need to feed it, you need to clothe it, you need to educate it, you need to house it, and no, it's not going to do anything to pull its weight. Um, he doesn't, like, begrudge them. No. He he, under he he gets it, yeah. He gets the hustle, because he also knows, like, he's dropping out of school. The hustle is his future. He understands this. And I think he feels bad that, like, his parents did all this work, and ultimately, like, maybe it'll all work out eventually for him, but the path that they really kind of picked for him and really wanted to put him on... It's just not going to work out. And I think this is his interest in the Sumadra family is a lot of him working out his own feelings about his relationship with his parents and how present they were and in what ways they were present. Because here you've got like he was always separate from his parents work. But here uh, here Anushka is part of the work, but Suresh isn't letting her be part of the work. And on top of that, the work is also actively making him more dangerous to her. Mm -hmm. and so that like that scene like yeah i was going around and making my little connections with everybody in the camp and trying to be the guy who was filling in all of the little bubbles but i tried to think in character what is the connection why does he have this affinity for the sumadra family and that's what it is it's about being protective of anushka because he sees something of himself in her that was my motivation. Definitely. And, and Suresh is definitely seems to be vibing with Kafka and like gets a kick out of him and sees him as like a perpetual student. I think he sees a lot of potential in Kafka that is definitely not there. Like, yeah. Like I, Suresh is nothing if not a teacher. Yeah. Suresh is definitely a teacher. And I think like I think Suresh can recognize that Kafka. Like, I think Suresh is one of those guys who very much is like excited about what he's excited about. Because and like <laughs> thinks like it's weird that p other people aren't excited about the same thing. But I think, like, he recognizes that people aren't, but, like, the only way he knows how to communicate is just, like, to further be enthused about whatever he's enthused about. Suresh is so convinced that Kafka will be, like, his project. Yeah. And Kafka, like, just wants him to sign his form, please. You just have to, you just have to find the thing you love, and you will blossom. <laughs> you will soar amongst the stars, young bird. And I'm just like, uh, yeah, but, like, I, what I really love is autographs. <laughs> I'm like... The student form. 
and you promised design. <laughs> well, I'm excited to see where these twisting paths of story continue to collide. Things are just really heating up in the jungle. I say that every crunch, and but every crunch, it continues to be true, and even more so in these recent episodes. I can't wait to see what happens next. You're slowly boiling the Gripply. Ooh, are, are the PCs the Gripply? Yes. Yes. Or the story is the Gripply. Mm. And you're just inside the Gripply. Why are you inside the Gripply? Because the characters are inside the... You know what? This metaphor isn't working, so we're just going to call it here. Uh, <laughs> you ruined my perfectly good metaphor. I'm sorry. Adding the Gripply confused me. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's, week's Crunch episode. Please tune in to next week's episode of the Mythos Manual. Please be sure, of course, to like, subscribe, share, follow us on our socials, check out our website. Oh, and please leave reviews. On any platform where you are getting your podcast, reviews help us so much. If you don't have a gigantic marketing budget behind you, which, surprise, most podcasts don't. That's why they're podcasts. <laughs> word of mouth is the most valuable way to get the word out. And we are really proud of the story that we're telling. And if you're enjoying the story, we would really appreciate it if you just left a little comment. Like, the star ratings are nice, but even just one line. Really like the characters. Kafka did no wrong. Kafka is cinnamon bun. Yeah. Uh, we do really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We'll see you next time on Crunch. This is Leslie Callenpaul signing off. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to the Mythos Manual. Be sure to check us out on our socials at Mythos Manual or our website, mythosmanual.com. May all your roles be 20s.